Welcome to the Dixie Polis Podcast. My name's Travis. And this is Luke. We are Southern Men De-Reconstructing the South. Luke is running a bit late for this podcast, so he will jump on whenever he uh, whenever he finds time if he jumps on. Uh, but we have an interview today, and uh, we have... Clem, who I met um, through various means and on on the interwebs, and uh, we'd you know just going back to the last few podcasts, we've talked about um, reduce you know Southern environmentalism from a conservative standpoint. Um, the last one we talked about growing your own food, and in this one we're going to stay in the similar vein, talking about cons- conservation easements. Um, so. I'll let you introduce yourself, Clem, and um, tell us who you are, your little bit of your background, and uh, that kind of stuff. Okay, great. Thank you for inviting me on, first of all. I'm very honored to uh, be a guest. I listen to you all, and I love uh, everything I hear. Uh, my name's Clem, and uh, I'm a Georgia boy, and I uh, have a background in some plant stuff and some dirt stuff and some law stuff and some tax stuff. Um, and, uh, and for part of my career, uh, it, uh, came together and, uh, putting together some conservation easement syndications and some that weren't syndicated. So I have some, um, uh, knowledge of that topic. And I think it's, uh, I think it's a, it's a move that can achieve a number of goals, certainly environmental and creation stewardship goals. Um, but also some financial resource goals and uh, and a little bit of sticking it to the man, too. Um, but in a way that the man allows you to stick it to him. So there's nothing nefarious. Um, though I will tell you, if you go Google conservation easement syndications, you'll find all kinds of bad stuff on Bloomberg. But we'll talk about that. Uh, we'll get into the weeds as far as we need to. Um, but it's an interesting approach um, to both conservation um i think family planning and family succession in the sense of by family planning i'm not talking about should i have one and a half kids or two and a half kids family planning in the sense of leaving generational legacies and uh and that and you know that involve land uh, that sort of um intergenerational family planning um i think it i think it's useful for that end too but i am a um Law professor at a small Bible college. I do not represent their views, though I can tell you that probably most of them would agree with anything I say here, <laughs> or at least with most of it. But I, I do not officially represent that college's views, which don't matter since we're not naming the college anyway. So, um, <laughs> but go ahead. I, I, do, I do not practice law now, but I did formerly. Again, I am transitioning into just teaching um, and working on trying to get a business going. Um, in the landscape and land management arena with my uh, boys. And um, I don't think my girls are interested, but if they want to do it, they're more than welcome to join as well. So, so it sounds like a little but, bit, uh, a little bit earlier, it kind of sounded um, a little bit of legal jujitsu had a, you know, when you said sticking it to the man, how to use their laws mm-hmm. against them and, and, you know, kind of, uh, the the left would call it loopholes. We'll just call it, you know, how the law was actually designed um, to exactly. ben- to benefit. You know, shouldn't they? Don't, they didn't intend for it to benefit the common man, but the rich people. You know, the scare quotes rich people. Um, 
So, but what is a conservation easement, though? Um, uh, I know I'm. I know about what it is, but uh, let's for the listeners. What is it? A conservation easement is where you give to someone a easement to monitor the land and make sure that it's being conserved in accordance with the terms of that easement. Um, limit the development is, you know, a, um, you know, the most common limiting the, the type of development. Um, and let me be a little back up a little bit, be a little bit more general. I can give you a conservation easement today, not ever report anything on my taxes. It's just between private citizens. I could give you the right to enforce the terms of that easement. Let's say you, um, you know, you've got $10,000 you want to do something with, you really like my land and you really don't want anybody to build more than two houses on it. I could give you a conservation easement privately and you would have the right to enforce that that land could never have more than two, two um, houses on it if I made it a permanent easement. Um, or maybe I just say, as long as you're alive, we'll never put two houses on it. Whatever the terms you and I agree with, we could do that just as between me and you, and we'd have a conservation easement that's enforceable in our local court if I violated the terms thereof. You'd write me a check for $10,000, I'd hand you the conservation easement, we'd record it at the local county courthouse, and uh, and then we would buy by the terms. That's what um, law people call essentially writing private law. We're deciding how two families are going to function together with respect to this land. And we're agreeing to that, and we'll be bound by the terms. There's no tax benefit to that, though. So, um, so let me make a distinction. That what I just described is, at it, in its basic form, a conservation easement. It's an easement that gives you rights to to enforce conservation on my land or on you know whatever land question. Specifically, though, for the you know, so we narrow the topic a little bit. What I'm talking about are conservation easements that you can claim a charitable contribution deduction for. Um, and there's that's um, those are complex. Um, they're simple ones, and we're going to talk about that. There's there's still a basic one that you can still get a tax benefit from, and then there's a more complex variety. Those are really beautiful when they work right. They can be scary though, and they're not for everyone, but everyone will be excited to hear about them and hear about what some people can do, and and cheer for them, and make sure that your representatives keep those laws in place that allow us to do those things. Now, the government does look at it, or well, I say the government, part of the government does look at them unfavorably, the complex variety. Um, and that's because it does remove some revenue from the federal fisc. But I did have a world-renowned environmental economist, uh, one whose formulas and whose methods all governments in the world rely on when they're computing things like economic cost of environmental um, damage. Um, he actually pointed out, he said, they gripe about the tax money that doesn't go into the federal fisc, but what they're not accounting for is the billions, if not trillions of dollars of land that is conserved that the government could never do on its own. So the value that's being added to the public good is in the trillions, whereas tax benefits for the people involved are substantial. There's no getting around that, but they're not anywhere near um, what the value is to the environment, 
um, even just to the fact that, the, you know, wherever these lands are, people can navigate a waterway without looking at condos or people can, you know, drive down a highway and see the mountain instead of billboards and, you know, cookie cutter mansions and also be able to have wildlife traveling through there freely and other things. So there's a, there's tremendous benefits to the common good um, that whenever the IRS argues against them, it never seems to account for all it focuses on is wah, 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 we didn't get tax dollars, when really they should be saying, wow, that was really nice of you to give us all of this benefit to all these people that are under our charge. But so look, just to recap, I don't want to repeat myself too much, but I, I'm relying on you to snip and cut later if we need to, as far as the, uh, if I repeat myself too much, but I, some of it's complex and I do want to keep it clear. There's a basic conservation easement, which can happen between any two parties or more that's enforceable in a court, but may not bring a tax benefit. The enforceable ones, of the enforceable ones, there's gonna be two varieties that we talked about. There's a basic one, and then there's an advanced one. Both of those will bring a tax benefit, but they also cost some money, and they also, particularly with the, um, the more advanced one carries some risk uh, for doing it. So let me say at the outset that the advanced one that we're gonna talk about, which are called syndicated conservation easements, those are on the IRS's list of abusive transactions. It's not an abusive transaction except to the IRS, it's the law. And I'll describe what, the, what I mean a little bit more by that, but they list it as an abusive transaction but that doesn't mean it's against the law. It means they say that it's apt to be abused. We don't play funny with any of the laws when we do them. And I don't encourage anybody to play funny with any of the laws when you do them um, because they target these more than other transactions. Um, they got a couple of small victories. And so they, um, you know, they smell blood in the water and they have committed more resources to auditing some of these. Um, but I've never had one audit. And most of the people that I know involved who have had some audited um, won. They won the audit. Now, they still had to spend some money defending, but we'll get into that too when we get into the weeds a little bit. But those are the three basic things that, you know, are, are it. The, the you know, private individuals and then there's two separate, two categories, I would say, that, uh, that bring a significant tax benefit. So, so okay. Um... Kind of, you know, just for my own, um, just for my own enlightenment, uh, whenever someone in, like, like, let's say I wanted to enter into a conservation easement with somebody else, I would essentially manage that land in the best way that is good for that land, whether that be planting, you know, 200, 200 acres of, um, of pine trees or even 200 acres of pecans that I could profit off of that would still fall under a conservation easement, right? Like, I, I could technically but, farm the land as long as it was within best use of the land. Like, obviously not clear-cut and, you know, monocrop the whole thing, but conserve it in such a way that it's actually profitable for not only myself, but also the land. Could I do something like that? Yes, and let me, again, clarify. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, for the rest of our conversation, I'm going to move... The private transaction out of the conversation i'm going to assume that everything we're talking about are the ones for the tax benefit from here on 
Um, yes, the answer is still yes. You can use the land. There are restrictions on it. Uh, you can timber the land. You can have low impact agriculture on it. You can't have a feedlot on it. Um, you can build houses on it. Generally, depending on a very few circumstances, generally not more than five. And you typically have to, <clears throat> excuse me, limit the number of permeable, uh, non-permeable surfaces you have. So if you have five houses, they're all at the back of the property, you can't probably put in 20 miles of road to get to the back of the property. You'd probably have to have gravel driveways, which you probably would do anyway, because cost, you know, pavement's not cheap. Um, so you have to have certain things like that, and it's usually under some percentage, like 2% of the total property can't be uh, a non-permeable surface. You know, there's, there's some sort of spelled out clear standard um for uh for for what you can do on the property you can have hunt leases on it um uh, yeah, yeah with timber with timbering you do have to have a specific whatever the state or local best practice best management practices is we call them the bmps whatever the bmps are for that jurisdiction you have to abide by the bmps um and the same goes for other things you may have to do a little bit of um you may have to clean up some creeks if you've had cows crapping in it or something like that. Sorry to use the word crap on your podcast. That's <laughs> fine. That's fine. We've used it a lot worse. Want to keep it clean. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, I mean, would not be what I'm thinking about is, you know, just straight up re regenerative agriculture. I'm talking like, mm -hmm. you know, making beautiful pastures like Joel Salatin did or moving pigs around right. and, you know, clearing the underbrushes up on, under, under trees or uh, planting beautiful, you know, People on this podcast have heard me gripe about the um, the pecan orchards that are getting mowed down for these these gay subdivisions that are all around. Um, I, I was just curious on you know what what the limitations were with that. So, uh, for instance, right up the road from me, they uh, they clear cut it after a hurricane, and it's been a hunting camp ever since I could remember. I finally know who owns it now, thankfully. Uh, and it's old money in the county, so I don't think he's going to sell it off. But I was really worried because they still haven't replanted right. pine trees there. You know, the pine trees were not ready to be harvested, but they went and got what they could, and they haven't replanted yet. So it, it kind of yeah. started to worry me that, oh, crap, they might move in, you know, they might move in another Frank subdivision bulldozer. right there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in, in, in which case, well, I'm not going to say what I'm going to do. Um. I'm I'm going to prevent them from doing that. <laughs> right. But, um, <laughs> now, now yeah. we, when we're looking at this, you know, everybody's out there to make a quick buck today. So you, you mentioned that the federals are, are looking at it and say, oh, well, it's hurting our bottom dollar, but it's really adding so much more to the commons of this area. What What is the 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 dollar amount comparison to say if, if somebody's going to sell the old family farm to put a subdivision up, granted they have, you know, a million dollars in their pocket today, but what the tax, the tax burden, like the, in the long run, how much more can that grow? Like if they're doing a conservation easement, does that make sense? Um, I think so. Do you mean as far as just continuing to use the land over, uh, I'm, you, you can, there's no doubt today, if you need $10 million, you're going to get it by selling the land. I mean, but the value of a, of a farming operation or value of timbering or, um, you know, something else like that, uh, but 
you know, I don't know if, how long it would take to get to that. Um, the syndicated conservation easements can, um, I'll, I'll explain the mechanics of those in a minute, but the syndicated conservation easements can bring a, as much or more than a straight up land sale. And I'll explain how that happens. Um, and so if you're doing syndicated conservation easement, which I'll say this once more and then probably won't say it again, it's not for everyone. You got to be careful. Do not do it without counsel. Um, there's a lot of tricky rules. We watch the cases nonstop uh, when we're doing them. And, um, you know, it's, it's a high risk. It's high risk for audit. Again, uh, if you do it right, there's no problem with that. I mean, you, you might get audited, but you should still prevail on audit. Uh, the amount of your charitable contribution deduction might get might get adjusted downwards. Um, but if you do it right, there should not be a problem. Uh, having said that, though, they are so they do still involve some costs and some risks. So um, I want to just want everybody to be real clear about that. Don't start go slinging a gun and trying to do one on your own because it is one of the more technical transactions and one of the ones that's fraught with risk. Having said that, I'll plunge right ahead like a, you know, renegade and uh, and say I love them and they're wonderful. Um, but the um, your question was about making money off the land, right? Let me get back well, to your question. Well, not not really. Well, I mean, uh, okay, so whenever I'm looking at the conservation easement, yeah, I mean, I guess I could, if I own 200 acres, right, just, just throwing a number out there, then I could do a conservation easement and I can make money off. I, I'm I'm in more the perspective of um, I'm the guy that's wanting to sell the land, and um, I'm not going to be making the profits like say if say if you know Joe down here wants to give me a conservation easement, how much you know, and I'm going to be making the profit if I'm running cows on that property or I'm doing the pecans or whatever. Um, what's the pro profit for Joe when he's not doing that work? Obviously, we can write up a contract. Say, okay, if I'm farming cows, you get X percentage of it. You know, as me leasing the land, basically, just in the conservation easement side of it. Yeah, that's a good, um, good question. The way you framed it, um, just to make sure I'm clear. So, you're a landowner, and you want to continue farming. Um, there's somebody that is interested in. Doing a conservation easement under the scenario would be a syndicated, um, and then so the question is, what would he? How is he able to make money off of that? Well, I mean, I'm asking like uh, if, if it's his land, right? It's his land, okay. and he lets me farm it, and he does the conservation gotcha. easement on his land. Oh, I'm okay. sorry if I was unclear. You're going to be restricted in how you can farm. There will be restrictions. There's restrictions on pesticides, although it's not an absolute restriction. Uh, for instance, when we uh, did last year, we actually had the land trust say, hey, if you don't spray some up, you're going to have invasive species, and that's not good for your land. Um, it's not good for the area. We want you to keep the weeds down. Here's some ways to do it. And uh, we, you know, we're going to write it up in our report, what they call a baseline report, that there will probably be needed, you know, X number of pesticide applications to prevent invasive species from getting a foothold on this land. So all that is driven by your relationship with the land trust. I, I need to get into that a little bit too. Maybe I should just 
Well, let me finish answering your question. Um, your farm and the land, the only thing, the only, I mean, the only hang up would be depending on how you're farming, it could restrict how you're farming. And so it could cut into your profitability. Um, you can't operate a feedlot, you know, you can't have, you know, a ton of cows on the land. It's got to be able to, it's got to be an agricultural operation that at a minimum conserves it. Mm -hmm. So when they do the baseline documentation report, the land trust does that. Um, they're going to say, hey, this is, yes, this is conservation worthy. Yes, we will accept an easement on that. Uh, e then they'll either say, it's ready to conserve the way it is, or they'll say there's some issues with the land that need to happen first. Like they might say there's there's a steep creek bank that has been sloughing off, you know, because of the asphalt over here is running the rainwater down too fast. Right. So that needs to be fixed, and then we'll be at our baseline to conserve. So there may be sometimes there's some things it totally depends on the property. Very property specific. All these are very very property specific. Um, you know, they'll either say it's great as it is, we accept it, or they'll say it's good as it is, do a couple of things, and then we'll accept it or commit to doing it, at least put that in the conservation easement that you're going to do it within a specified time. Um, and so there are things like that in your agreement with the land trust that, um, you know, that, that may affect your profitability. Uh, but that, again, is a very... There's a very land and situation specific. If you're already doing regenerative agriculture, probably no problem. It, you probably won't feel a blip uh, other than having to work around some people surveying your land and running probes down in the dirt and, you know, things like that. Okay. Hey, yeah. if you can't get here on time, get here when you can. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll, I'm looking at it all from Welcome a Welcome to your podcast. I'm the host tonight. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Dixie Post podcast. This is Clem. Uh, <laughs> nice intro. Yeah, this, like that's it. the that's the uh, intermission intro. Uh, okay, uh, so I don't I don't know if you want to start with this uh, or or not, but I, I've teased the idea with uh, with Travis. I really like the Jesse Lee Peterson idea of doing a hot seat right at the end of the interview, and you get like this barrage of like ten questions where you just have to answer the first thing on top of your head. Uh, I don't know if you want to do that or not, but oh, I don't. I do not. That's fine with me. <laughs> I don't know exactly the thing that you're describing, so I don't know the format. But I'll comply. Well, he'll, he'll answer questions like, "Did did did Big Mama Michelle eat all the the ri the ribs?" Of course she did. <laughs> or or will you celebrate White History Month with me? Yes. <laughs> Only History Month I celebrate. Yeah, <laughs> <That's right. laughs> uh, he he got um, a uh, he had a black Hebrew Israelite on his podcast last, and uh, and surprisingly, the guy said, "Yeah, I'll celebrate White History Month with you." I was like, "Well, okay." <laughs> cool. <laughs> That's funny. Okay, so there's within the realm of. Uh, conservation easements that bring a tax benefit. There's two basic ways you can go. There's basic and there's a, what I'm just going to call advanced for the sake of it for now. A basic conservation easement is a situation where, you know, John the farmer uh, doesn't want to develop his land. 
And so he finds a land trust and he um, he gives a conservation easement to the land trust and he takes a tax deduction for the value of uh, well, the way the value is determined is is there's an appraisal that determines the post conservation easement value and the pre conservation easement value. What is the land worth after you put an easement on it? What is the land worth before you put an easement on it? The difference between those two is your charitable contribution to the charitable contribution deduction. Um, most any appraiser can do these. Um, they just go and they look at your normal comps on the land in the area. And they say, okay, well, you have 200 acres. It's worth a million dollars. After you put the conservation easement on it, it's going to be worth $700,000. So you have a $300,000 charitable contribution deduction. You write $300,000 in your on your tax form. If you can't use all that deduction in that year of the contribution, which most people can't, especially farmers, then you can carry it forward and use it in subsequent years. Um, it's uh, and, and in fact, most the time most of those transactions no one ever uses the full deduction because most of the people doing those transactions do not have the income to count those deductions against they don't they don't owe enough taxes in other words for to ever use a $300 $300,000 charitable contribution deduction Does that makes sense everybody with me yeah but but Farmer John gets his tax benefit. He does get some tax benefit from that. And we have conserved land. Um, he can still farm, you know, again, with the, with the subject to certain limitations. Uh, he can still farm. He can still do modest development. He could build some houses for his kids, um, depending on the size of the land. There's, um, you know, I'm giving a very generalized sort of scenario. There's different specifics. You know, if he's only got 50 acres, he may not be able to do that. Um, but it all just depends on on the acreage involved and the type of you know the type of the land that's being conserved, um, and um, you know there's there's always a land trust that with when you're talking about the tax benefit ones it has to be it has to be an approved land trust basically a five hundred one c three or some other five hundred one c usually they're c threes they don't have to be but they do have to be um, a charitable publicly charitable um, land trust. Uh, because they have to do what they're supposed to do or they'll lose their ability to be a 501c3. If you, if Farmer John ever does something to his land that he said in the easement that he wouldn't do, the land trust then has has the ability to come in and enforce that. And the Farmer John actually usually has to pay the land trust to accept the easement. And the reason he pays the land trust to accept the easement is because that they're basically putting that in an endowment fund, which they then use if they have to ever enforce. And they do have to enforce sometimes. In fact, not long ago, some people in California who had put some beachfront property into a conservation easement decided they could make more money building condos and they, um, they decided to build condos. And um, they took a chance with that and they, Ended up having the land trust enforce the easement uh, and had to tear it down. But um, 
most of the time, especially we're talking, you know, farmland in the South, most of the time that's not going to be challenged. You can go to court and have them modified to certain extents, but that you get your, your own, your own, your own touchy ground there because the conservation easement for it to receive the tax benefit has to be permanent. Has to be a permanent conservation easement. Okay, so, so there's, there's that's no, your basic scenario. There's no recourse to like you know, say say I have a um, hundred acres that I put in under, under a conservation easement. I can't you know in fifty years time go and take that conservation easement off. Assuming the U.S. government is still in power, no. Okay. Um, we pray they aren't. <laughs> as the law is under the law and just yeah there's no reason to argue those things or prognosticate um, as the right. law stands no it's a it has to be a permanent conservation easement okay so I, you know i'm um, just i'm just looking have... at i'm just looking at like future you know say i have say i have x amount of kids and then they have you know say i have 50 grandkids and i, I couldn't put 50 houses out there for the grandkids under a conservation easement if it's not written that way um probably not there's uh, essentially what happens in a situation like that i mean 50 houses probably is not going to fly right it, but essentially what's going to happen in a situation like that if you did find you needed to do something um you'd go to the land trust first and say hey here's a situation um i know 50 houses a lot but hey i put you know i put 10,000 acres under conservation and those do happen, um, even bigger. I put 10,000 acres. I mean, really, you know, can't we do like a house every 100 acres and, you know, be square? And they might. The, the thing that they have to be careful about, and the thing that can get you in trouble with the IRS, is if that got audited and um, the IRS said, oh, well, that's a modification that means your easement wasn't permanent. So in that situation, what the land trust is going to have to do, and you're going to have to pay to do it, because nobody works for free. What the land trust is going to have to do is generate documentation and environmental reports to say, if we modify it to include additional housing, it will not negatively affect the conservation purpose. And you have to list a conservation purpose in there. You know, it can be preserving a scenic, you know, preserving a scenic vista. It could be preserving um, habitat for migratory, you know, migrations of various animals. It could be preserving some extinct fly, you know, or, or, or endangered fly. Um, so there's a few different conservation purposes. It could be, it could be, you know, for preserving the quality of water in the area. Um, so they would have to basically sign off with, sign off on, and not just knee jerk sign off on, but actually establish documentation opinions rendered by ac experts who would go into court and defend it if they had to, to say the conservation purpose as stated in our easement will still be in place if this change is made. Okay. Uh, so that, that's, that's the way that happened in general. Now, in general though, they're permanent. Okay. Good to know. You, yeah. You'd want to try to anticipate as much of that as you could on the, on the front side. Right. Okay. All right, I, I was just curious about that. I mean, but but that's that's a really good safeguard against, you know, whenever uh, my children's children are roaming, you know, South Alabama, and um, they don't have to look at these 
these ugly McMansions and these you know these cardboard cutouts of subdivision. So, you know, we'll, well, we'll if you do the advanced one, like I'm going to tell you about, if you do the advanced one, like I'm going to tell you about, you can take some of that money and go buy more land and put it under conservation for the rest of your grandchildren. <laughs> uh, the, the terms are all right. So we clear. <laughs> so we you got you have the idea farmer the IRS and 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 the lefties all like the farmer John situation because farmer John rarely gets to use all that tax benefit and and then they get you know they like let's give it to the left they like land conservation to a point um and uh, and and God bless them for that even though they do it for all the wrong reasons. That's about the only slender piece of land that God will bless them on. Uh, but, you know, still, and he doesn't really bless them if they don't love him. But um, <laughs> anyway, that still will bless them. You know, we'll, we'll be happy. We'll be co-belligerents on that, on that, on that ground with them. Um, it does conserve land. Um, it does, you know, protect the, you know, the endangered tit mouse or whatever. And, um, and uh, which is so important to them instead of human beings being slaughtered in the womb but but there's minimal damage there's minimal repercussions to the federal fisc I, you know he's not farmer john is not severely impacting the amount of revenue that comes into the irs's coffers so that's why they don't i mean they re, you'd really have to screw something else uh, screw something up on those you still have to do all the same requirements as, as you do um, on the um, on the uh, the more advanced ones, and that's where you know you have to pay for the land trust to accept the easement. You have to pay an appraiser, um, but the appraiser that you that you use usually doesn't have to be somebody specialized, like I'm going to talk about. Um, and if you're not trying to press for a higher charitable contribution deduction value, you're not going to be paying some of the other experts that you do for the advanced ones. So it's a little bit more simple. You still have to meet all the same hoops, but it's a little bit more simpler and you're not paying as much on the front end, though you are still paying something in order to do it. So not only is he not paying as much into, and, and that's why, frankly, the only people that these are really good for Tax benefit-wise, are the Ted Turners of the world. If you're Ted Turner and you, you have 40,000 acres of ranch land, conservation easement might actually be a good thing. And, and just, and I mean, without doing the advancement, just you personally. But the, the number of people who individually will actually come out ahead uh, significantly on a regular scenario A, Farmer John, uh, conservation easement are only the super rich. That's just that's which which of course we also know the left wing progressives also like because they tend to vote with them. So it's the Ted Turners, it's the I don't know of any other rich ranchers, the Arthur Blanks, Bill Gates. Um, Falcons owner, those kind yeah, of those kind of guys. Can, I, I don't know if he has a farm, but he might. You know, the Gates, Robert Redfords, whoever might have a farm. Uh, Bill Gates bought a lot of farms uh, up in. Um... Uh, Mississippi. Yep. Oh, that's too bad. Yeah, he became like one of the biggest farmers overnight. Oh, Literally gosh, overnight. Really he's awesome. paying he's paying 120 to 150% land value just to own the property. And of course, 
you know, guy out here who hadn't watched the news in four years and doesn't keep track of anything, just is like, ooh, I'd make some money. You know, he'll go you know, I feel rent like- out a, he'll just go rent out a condo or something and he's he's set. Yeah. I feel like I might have actually heard y'all talk about that on one of your podcasts previously. Yeah, I'm a little uh, salty I know, about I know it. that didn't. Yeah, I don't. I don't blame. Him. There should be a, there should be a land ownership restrictions, but that's another topic for another day. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm of the opinion that if the if the person who's purchasing the property, either does not live in the state, does not live in my state, or if they don't intend to use that land, to preference the people of my state, then they shouldn't be able to own the land. Straight, hands down. Yeah. So that's my uh, no. soapbox there. Sorry. No, that's a good one. I think that's. I mean, that's a lot of the problem. I mean, I, um, you know, if you go around Atlanta, and you go onto any almost any construction site where they're you know slapping in homes on every square inch of ground they can possibly find. Um, I was on one not long ago where, you know, next to the next to the six hundred thousand dollar itty bitty cookie cutter townhomes was a dump. On the other side of the six hundred thousand dollar itty bitty cookie cutter townhomes was a high transmission power station. On the third side was the railroad. Um but every single builder with whom I have kind of there wasn't like Every, I mean, let's say four. I had conversations with four builders on that property. I mean, I don't know if I heard a southern accent among any of them. Oh, there's a lot of um, Yankees. This is not our, <laughs> this is not our people. This is not our, yeah. not our people developing these things. Not entirely. There are some southern Yankees, but um, it continues to be largely Yankee driven. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's, a, it's an issue. Um, on the other hand, I do. You know, there's a, I, um, you know, for a long time I came down extremely. Um, I still do, uh, for the most part, but there are ways to um, value private property rights, and I think, you know, I think I think it's a matter of whose property rights are you valuing the most? Private, whose private property are you valuing the most? The people who come from there and stay there, or the people who are going to come in and profit and leave and destroy the land? Um, in the ecosystem and the traffic and the water and everything else. Um, so yeah, that's a it's a little bit of, it's a little bit off topic, but it's related. Um, and it's this is these are very useful to help slow that down anyway. So um, off off air, I know Travis and I have talked about. Um, I'm not going to fall for that. I've seen too many of those off air recordings. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, nice try, Luke. Yeah, nice try. Um, you know, we, we were, we were talking about, um, you know, property rights as, you know, an Englishman would have understood them, mm-hmm. you know, if a farmer owned land and he wasn't a net contribution to his community. Uh, he wouldn't have rights to his land because he's just, he's hurting his community. You know, the property rights aren't absolute right. and they shouldn't be. Right. Um, and, and, uh, with the, with the, I hate this word, but it's it's really appropriate here. The the toxic influences of libertarianism. I mean, and I mean that literally. Uh, 
where it's just this um, this over obsession with self ownership and property ownership as the basis of all liberty. They don't have any way of really valuing community and community is an afterthought to them. And your community comes second to your individual property rights or your individual personal ownership. Uh, it's really an almost demonic way of looking at it. And I, I, I feel, I feel personally guilty that I was, I've perpetuated it for so long, you know, I perpetuated it for a decade, you know, no. trying to convince people of libertarianism and, um, it's 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 at least a, a faulty view derived from the enlightenment that's at, and at, at the least at worst it's a demonic twisting of god's view of mankind well i mean uh, it's their yeah, property. i agree with they can i agree with that well, it's like the meme that it's their property they can dump toxic sludge in their backyard if they want to right yeah, and it doesn't matter how they affect their their neighbors, you know. Yeah. Um, and I don't know, and, and maybe this will be if we get some time. Uh, I actually have some ideas um, that I've come close to being able to implement with some people, but I still get pushback on on. But I want that in my name. But I have some ideas on how to. We might get to it because it is actually I've actually wanted to do it in conjunction with conservation easements. Um, but I've got some ideas on how to do um, do some of that protection and um, and how to make sure that it lasts. You know, I mean, it's obviously man man's best laid plans are subject to providence prerogative of God. But you know, as much as we can plan on taking care of something for a long time. I do think there are some mechanisms um, that could be used, but they almost always involve somebody having to not have his own little individual stick. You know, you've probably heard this. If you haven't, I, I can go a little bit more into it. But property right, your right to your property, it's not like you're saying. It's not this absolute thing. It's what we often say in the law. It's a bundle of sticks. And you have a bundle of sticks, some of which you might have to give up or some of which you might have to exchange for something. Nobody who has a mortgage has all those sticks, for example. In fact, I'd say somebody who has a mortgage might even have fewer sticks than somebody who has a good lease written. Um, but you can't, you can't tell anybody in America that. Oh, no, no, you don't want to be a renter. The real estate agents have made sure that nobody wants to be the dreaded renter. Um, and when he says a bundle of sticks, ladies and gentlemen, he's talking about fasces, not faggots. <laughs> well, well, I know, uh, getting getting back on the, the dreaded renter, I know uh, Greg Judy out, and I think he's in Missouri, um, he uh, he farms like thousands of acres, thousands of acres, and uh, he only owns a couple hundred because he leases out so much land to run cows on. And uh, he farms yeah. very similar to Salatin. You know, he keeps them in with one strand of electric wire. And um, he's far more profitable. And he's got far more freedom than if he actually owned the land. Um, so that, right. I mean, that's just one way to look at it. I've actually looked at I don't have the capital right now to go lease some land. Um, so I'm, that's kind of what I, cause I, I would love to, to play with cows all day long. But that's just not feasible right now. 
yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And let's circle back to that. I want to make sure that we do at least hit the things that are that are the you know the main topic of the. But there's uh, there's some more creative ideas I think along the lines that we're conversing now. Um, um, but I think we'll I want to make sure I touch on the on the syndicated conservation easement. It is a little bit complex. It might take a little time, but once we've done that. If y'all want to, if we have time, y'all want to, I'm more than happy to come back to a couple ideas I've had that I've had some people really come close to doing and really discuss seriously, but ultimately not, not pull the trigger. But let me go ahead and describe the, uh, the big, the big bear on the block in the conservation world is what's called a syndicated conservation easement. A syndicated conservation easement, and I'll just, it's easier, the easiest way to explain it is to give you a hypothetical. I own uh, 5,000 acres of land. Um, I, uh, I pay um, a geologist to come drop some core samples in my land. I find out that I have 120 million guaranteed tons of granite on the land. Over 20 years, if I mine those, you know, if I mine whatever, however much I could mine in 20 years, I would make $250 million profit. So what I decided to do is, if I haven't already, I probably would with 5,000 acres, but if I haven't already, I form an LLC. Um, I transfer the land to the LLC. It's not a tax, not, there's no recognition on that. Uh, I continue to do the rest of the work on the conservation easement. Once I have the, once I have a geologist certify, you know, we have an average of 10 feet of overburden. And under that we have 120 million guaranteed tons of, you know, grade four granite, which can be used by every DOT in the union. The property is within two hours of four major urban markets. Uh, so your cost to getting to market is not prohibitive. There's rail nearby. You're five miles from major interstate, so you could truck it. Um, you know, basically, you have after you find that you have the granite, you, you hire mining consultants to come in, and and buddy, they go through everything, like your labor costs, how much grease your machines are going to need over a 20-year period. How often you're going to have to replace machinery, um, you know, the typical fluctuation in labor rates, they're going to come up with a mining plan that's good enough for you to go seek investors and mine that property if you wanted to. It is not any different than if somebody was going to go mine the property, they've got the map and it's almost certainly barring some, you know, some unforeseen change, unforeseeable change. What you see on that paper is how what you're going to be able to make is going to be pretty close to what you're going to be able to make. And so we get the mining consultant report. We identify a land trust that's interested in conserving 5,000 acres. Um, we survey the property, which is going to cost some money. Um, and we get the land trust to come do their baseline documentation report, which also costs money. Um, at the end of the day, we have spent two, three, maybe $400,000 to get all of our documentation. That's a lot of money, but understand, 
My 5,000 acres is worth, I don't know, $15 million. But here's where it gets good. The way the law is written is when you're doing your appraisal, your post-conservation appraisal and your pre-conservation appraisal, the difference, as the law states it, is not what are your comps in the neighborhood. The standard is what is the highest and best use of that land? And so if I have industry experts coming in to tell me your economically highest and best use for this land is to mine the granite. And if you mine the granite over a 20-year period, we could extend it out 30 years, but let's just be conservative and say 20, over a 20-year period, you're going to make $250 million if you mine this granite. Well, guess what? That's your, that's your pre-conservation easement value that you use on your charitable contribution deduction calculation. So now, while $300,000 is a lot of money to spend getting all that documentation, you're now looking at having a charitable contribution deduction that's the difference between 250 million and 15 million. Everybody on the same page? That's a big, that's a big uh, Facebook. <laughs> no, that's a, that's a big charitable contribution deduction. I was gonna try and use one of the little catchy little Acronym things like I just learned. I just learned about Facebook, Apple, Google. <laughs> so I'm trying to think. I'm trying to think of those for everything now. That, that's but that's anyway, my uh, new. That's, uh, that's, that's my favorite word. I, I don't know if Travis told you that or not, but uh, I okay. I try to sneak it in at least once every conversation, just once. Well, I mean, what fag wouldn't? Okay, but you, okay, <laughs> but you were saying earlier. Okay, the um. That the charitable contribution for you know a normal basic uh, conservation easement is about three hundred thousand dollars, right? But in that scenario, if you don't do all the work and pay all those experts, in in the Farmer John scenario, Farmer John didn't go find out what the highest and best use is right. for that land. Well, but you were as saying farmland. Well, you were saying as that farmland. The, no, I'm sorry. So as farmland, if you use the same use that it currently is, it's worth a million dollars without a conservation easement on it. Mm -hmm. After the conservation easement is on it, it's worth, and I'm just throwing numbers out. After right. the conservation easement, it's worth 700000 He gets a $300 charitable contribution deduction, which Farmer John himself will probably never be able to use all mm -hmm. of. But Even it, though he can carry it forward for a few years. But if it's Farmer John that's also, you know, that's got that you know, million, you know, a few million dollars worth of granite up under there. He's not going to be able to use that high of a, you know, a um, uh, tax deduction, anyways, is he? So no. Like... Hang on. Okay. I'm hanging hang on. on. Travis, <laughs> hang on, Travis. Uh, so, so what do I do now? Now that I've, I see. And you got to, I mean, it, when you hire these people, you say, I don't care what number you come up with. I want it to be the absolute. I want you to, to go conservative with all your estimates. You know, expect economic trouble when you're figuring out how much money I'm going to make mine in that gravel. You know, look at historic uh, recessions. See if my 20-year period is going to hit a historic recession. I mean, you want them. This is an economic forecast that you need to be able to count on. 
And you'd need, you'd need to be able to count on that if you were going to go mine it, right? I mean, when you're getting your investment, you would need to be able to say, this is what we're going to make to your investors. At least you'd need to be able to say, we've taken into account every possible factor that's knowable. And that's what we do. We go to that. You should see these reports. I mean, they're hundreds of pages long, and I review all of them. And I go back and I say, well, this doesn't make sense here. This is inconsistent here. We spend a lot of time, so there's, there's a lot of consultant time involved. That's why I say it's a big cost to get these done. But you see how it's an economies of scale issue when you're talking about that size charitable contribution deduction. <laughs> Maisie, you're, you're basically I mean, that's, running. That's a lot of money. You're, you're basically running a high detail, uh, you know, cost revenue analysis of what it would take to actually, you know, run a mine on that land. And that touches a little bit on the stuff that I do with my vocation. Won't dox myself here, but, uh, you know, I've, I've, I've had my hands in some of the estimating stuff. So I, I know a little bit, you know, about what that would take. Uh, and that and that's kind of the low end I mean, ha having an actual, you know, 20 year forecast like you're talking about, uh, you know, that's that's a that's a high cost, but you're getting accurate data, more or less. Yeah, and I'll talk about some of the typical costs that I've seen and the ones I've dealt with in a minute. But let me finish the let me finish the transaction description. So, you, so we're just at the point where we see based on a granted expert who has cored, hopefully a minimum of three, depending on the size on 5,000 acres, you'd have to core it probably 10 times. But if you're on 200 acres, you could probably do three and, and be fine. Um, you know, they cored in different spots. And you have your mining consultants look at those cores and say, based on this, based on market analysis, you know, are you are you an hour or two? They like to be an hour, but, it, you know, two, you can still, you know, your, your profit would just be less if you're two hours from a market. They like to be on rail they like to be near you know not too far from a major highway um it doesn't have to be an interstate it could be just a you know road that trucks can drive on easily anyway so we're, we're assuming a bunch of facts here obviously but assuming that on five thousand and by the way that's not that i've had i've seen hundred plus million appraisals on less than 200 acres of land so when i say a 250 million appraisal i'm not uh that's not even close to out of the realm of possibility when you're talking about in the in the mining ones. There's you can do it any anyway. I'm just using a mining example. Um, I'll use some others in a minute just to you know, just for variety. But in the mining example, you have mining consultants nationally recognized who operate mines. They do it all the time. They come in and they say, "This is what you're going to make over a 20-year period." If you you know you can go out 25 or 30 years if you want to. Usually when we're doing these, we do 20 because that's conservative. It's more conservative. Um, you know, we figure in where, you know, what years the costs are going to be in. I mean, it's extremely detailed. So then we have an appraiser who is specialized, highly specialized in these, come in and look at the mining report, look at the land, look at everything around the land, look at the, um, you know, look at the granite as much as you know, obviously he's going to rely on the expert. Everybody looks at everything in order to ask questions of other people's work, just in case somebody didn't account for some factor. And he's going to say, yes, this is your pre-conservation value. This is your post-conservation value. 
That appraiser has to have certain qualities under 170. Section 170 is what governs these, 170H in the uh, Internal Revenue Code. And he's gonna, so he's gonna have to be a qualified appraiser, but he's gonna say, yes, this, these are the values. He's not making a tax decision at that point. He's just saying, these are your values. Um, usually we get a local council um, to come in and write a, an opinion letter that says, under in this jurisdiction, he would be able to get the permits. You know, he'd be able to do this, that, and the other. Shouldn't be a problem. Um, there's nothing on the land. There's nothing that would cause this not to, to happen. Uh, that costs some money. So essentially, you get all of that documentation together. That's your artillery. That's your artillery to go to war when it gets audited. Essentially, what the IRS is going to have to do is come in and say, our experts are better than your experts. And guess what? They never are. <laughs> because the best experts don't work for the IRS. <laughs> because it, it don't pay. So I have seen them come in with appraisers who have done nothing but value, you know, single residence, residential homes, and try and argue against an appraiser who has valued, you know, a million acres including with the military base included on it, you know, and try and say, well, there's no comps for a million acres with the military base. And like, well, no, sh Sherlock. And, um, but that, that's the kind, that's usually, so you amass your artillery on the border. You're preparing for war with that documentation. That's why we don't play around with it. And that's why we tell every single one, independent judgment, just forget what we're doing. We want your independent judgment as to what we could do with this land. If you, if you were going to invest in it, you you know do just like you're doing your homework for yourself that's what we want and your the payment is never contingent on the outcome um you know you you know right up front you know here's your fee and i i don't care you tell me what what we have here okay once you've done that and this is where it gets a little bit tricky and this is where some people stumble really is you then invite investors to buy into your llc so when you're and, and when you get investors to buy into your LLC, you cannot tell them we're going to do a conservation easement. You, what you tell them is this company owns a 5,000 acre piece of land, and here's some of the things we could do with it. We could build on it. We could put a theme park on it. We could mine it, or, or we could do a conservation easement on it. Everyone has a vote. No one has to vote anyway. Your membership in the LLC is not contingent on your voting for one or the other. So all of that has to be very clear. It has to be underlined, bolded, italicized, blocked out, put in, you know, a smaller paragraph, you know, in the, in the paperwork. You have to make that really clear. And, and these are absolutely essential. Nobody can go in there. It has to be a legitimate, it has to be a legitimate business purpose, as they call it. Now, to you and me, a legitimate business purpose is saving taxes <laughs> and conserving land. Um, there's different ways. Actually, some of these, some people have played around there. You know, there's some states that now do um, public benefit corporations where it's still for profit, but it has a primary motive of public benefit. So there's, there's some, um, there's some pioneering in those areas of using what they call PBCs for these. Um, you know, I've, I've still just, the LLC is a simple streamlined operation. There's, I don't know if there's any particular advantage other than a, a PBC doesn't have the typical business expectation of 
maximum profit, maximum time, you know, all the time, maximum profit. A public benefit corporation does have a legally stated purpose of benefiting the public. And so that is a legitimate business purpose, make money and benefit the public. Um, but anyway, you get investors to buy into your LLC, and that's where, in this scenario, I, the landowner, I'm now syndicating by selling off my interests in the LLC. And that's where I make money on the land. Okay, I've got $235 million of charitable contribution deduction in this land. How much do I need to sell interest in my LLC for me to make a pretty decent little pile of money? 20 million? 30, 50? I mean, you, you, see, you see how this quickly turns into not only a beautiful conservation tactic, a beautiful revenue generation tactic, especially for our people who may have the land and can use some of those proceeds to either invest in other land and do similar things with, invest in our causes, invest in, you know, job creation for our people, invest in planting churches. Oh, there's so many good things. And yes, a lot of people who do it, do it, you know, so they can, you know, gallivant and live the you know, live the playboy life, so to speak. But that's that's not us. That's not what we're about. We want to see land conserved. We want to see families strengthened. So all these people who, all these investors who buy in, essentially what happens is they buy in. There's a legitimate vote. And I'm, I mean, no monkey business. There's a legitimate vote. And I've always wanted, I've always secretly wanted to see one of these mine the property, just out of curiosity to see if anybody ever will vote that way. So far, most of the people... Honestly, genuinely, and we have to, we, we send them detailed question, questionnaires. They generally have some interest in land, land conservation. Um, they are typically fairly savvy. But in, again, unless you're a Ted Turner and Arthur Blank or Bill Gates, you don't have an opportunity like this to actually benefit from all that tax deduction and also be sitting there with 5,000 acres of land. I mean, that's a really small group of people. You might have somebody with the 5,000 acres of land or maybe a family, um, but you don't usually have both of those mixed unless you're in the super elite. Uh, so this is a chance for somebody who makes a million bucks a year to engage in real, ta in real land conservation. And you know, maybe they live in a McMansion in Atlanta somewhere, but they're able to actually conserve land around Atlanta which maybe they want to do, they value that, and they're interested in receiving some tax benefit for doing it. Um, but essentially why the IRS doesn't like it, here's the rub, the IRS doesn't like it because I'm not raising $250 million. I'm raising significantly less than that. But if they all vote to do a charitable tax conservation easement, I mean a charitable conservation easement, that tax benefit flows through to all the members of the LLC. Because it's a flow-through entity, so what then then happens is the 250 million gets divided pro rata among all the members of that LLC, and they have a tax benefit that they can use and carry forward into the future. So maybe they have a business that they know they're going to sell three years down the road, and they invest in my company today. They use some of the charitable contribution deduction in years one and two, but in year three, 
they're using as much as they possibly can in that year because they're selling their business and they're going to generate a bunch of revenue. So there's a few more rules and, and things around it, but, but that I think hopefully, and I'm going to stop and ask if y'all, if it's all clear, hopefully you see why I think the, for the, you know, for the people in the scenarios where it works, why I think it could be a very powerful tool to say nothing of the dollars that are kept being kept out of the enemy's pocket. So, so in layman's terms, um, essentially whenever they're investing in that LLC, what they're doing is, is they're, they're, they're just buying into something that gives them a huge tax write-off. If everybody votes to do that. Oh yes. If everybody votes they have to, to do vote. That. Right. Okay. Okay. So I, what you I, have is you have a closing. Yeah. And, so you have a closing. So you get subscribers. You send out subscription agreements, and this is the way you do it normally when you get investments for a new business. You send out subscription agreements. There, nobody's. You know, it, there's a date on which they typically have to wire money into escrow, and then there's a closing, where if you've had enough subscribers, you hit the whatever the amount is that you. Let's say I wanted to raise thirty million dollars. And I've said that I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna do this sale if I don't raise thirty million dollars. I might raise forty, but I've got to raise at least thirty. So on closing day, if I have thirty million dollars in escrow, with signed subscription agreements from qualified investors, and I'm using terms that all have uh, technical meaning uh, from qualified investors, then we close on that day. I get my thirty million. They all get their respective member units or membership interest in the LLC. And usually on the same day, sometimes it's the day after, but usually they will submit a vote. There will be basically they will submit a ballot that says, you know, check if you want to develop it, mine it. One of the other things we do is hold for future decision, hold for a future. You know, do we want to just hold this as inventory or do you want to do a conservation easement? So they send in their vote where they've checked one of those. At that point, we know whether we're doing a conservation easement or not. Um, um, and um, and so that's why there is some risk because they might all check to just hold it. In which case, it's still conserved. You've, you know, for the time being, it's conserved, but it might get sold down the road, and you've put three to four hundred thousand dollars into it. Now you just made thirty million. Kind of takes the pain away, but. Um, or whatever the number is, but um, you're definitely you're not going to have a raise that's not enough to cover the costs of what you've done already. Um, but there's also the risk that you don't you don't get the raise you wanted, in which case you can hold on and try another year and so on and so forth. So, so in that system, who would have there? managerial rights? Like if if say I bought the piece of property and then the LLC bought it for me because they gave me the thirty million dollars. Who would have managerial rights over the property? Would it be the entire LLC, or would the LLC vote like this guy, like me, is the manager of the property? I can say for the conservation purposes, I can go out there and farm it regeneratively. I can set up a hunting camp. I can set up. Um, I would assume that that can all be done through the LLC, right? The operating agreements, where that's all done. Oh, okay. Um, typically. Typically, you have, uh, I mean, the way they can be done different ways, and different people do them a little bit differently. Um, generally, I have a different entity that is the manager. Um, so you have, uh, you know, property LLC. 
or let's call it, we'll call it Big Property LLC, and then we have Big Property Manager LLC as the manager of Big Property LLC. Um, and then Big Property Manager LLC might hire me, the original landowner, to do all the decisions about the land. If it goes into conservation easement, then I'll be the one to implement the um, the development plan that we have, the, you know, or the you know the use plan more properly, the use plan that we've agreed to with the land trust. If they say we can put three houses there, you know, that are five thousand square feet, then I'll, you know, I'll manage, um, you know, having having a builder do that or whatever. Um, so that's kind of the way that works. And somebody, if somebody bought, actually bought, somebody could still buy uh, the house. It would just be, um, you know, just be subject to all the terms of conservation easement. They'd have to be okay with that. Okay. Well, so that's um, okay. Uh, w one of the things that I that I uh, I heard, I can't remember where exactly I heard it first from, uh, but I've heard it talk quite a bit. Was um, creating like a an LLC, a corporation, have a board. And each member of the board is allowed access to the property. Uh, say, you know, have say, say if there's five members on the board, and you have a thousand acres, you can have five families living on this thousand acres, and then have um, 995 acres of commons that they can use. Say, you know, they have. Um, basically, you're creating a little community, right? And then you're you're regeneratively putting more into the putting more equity within that community to actually work and to, to thrive basically. So you would get all your food from said community. You would then, you know, like say one family wants to farm. So they farm the commons and then the other four families want, you know, I'm, I'm talking about farming cause that's kind of where my brain goes. But then the other four families, they're, uh, they're tradesmen and they go out and get the money from out, from outside the community and bring it back to feed into their community, right? So they're just enriching their community because all the food's coming from them anyways. You know, and you could technically, you know, the money that comes in to, as like um, membership uh, dues or whatever can just go and buy you know gold, precious metals, maybe Bitcoin, put it all together, and then you could have your own in-community currency. That makes sense. It's kind of off into the weeds, but, you know, in the same vein, having just a community that, that's in the LLC, they, they're under the best practices of it because they're, they're farming this area. Maybe they have a few hundred acres over here that's still, you know, wilderness where the members can go hunt, um, but you're also farming. You're producing all the food that you need on property. Would the, that, that would be something that's similar to what you were talking about, right? Or it could be. Um, it could be. Um, the issue is going to be the you know typically when you do this because you know in in scenario B you know when we're not in the Farmer John scenario. Hey baby. Hey. <laughs> this one's number Sorry. four. Uh, there's yeah. baby. There, this is where the baby noises was coming from. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, hi. <laughs> <laughs> Look at that. Hey there. Hey. Hey. It's like, what the heck is that? <laughs> um, <laughs> Ooh, that spooked her. The issue on doing it exactly that way, you're, you're, 
you're around what I had sort of envisioned. Um, um, what I was going to talk about as far as, you know, some, some things you could do with this. On the raise, you probably wouldn't do it there. You would probably have um, an initial core of people who uh, bought in for something less. Like if, if I'm the landowner and I had some people that I wanted to be in community with, I'd be I'd say, hey, um, I'm going to do this. Um, uh, it's the, the only problem with that in my in my scenario. Um, you're still not going to be able to do a lot of development. You're always going to be a little bit limited on the development. Um, but let's say we're going to have, I don't know, two miles down the road, we have 300 acres that 10 families want to live on. That you know, And that doesn't have to be in the conservation. It's separate. It's not what we call a contiguous parcel. There's separate rules um, that involve... Um, what's called a contiguous parcel. I'll, I may get into those weeds in a minute, but let's just say it's a couple miles down the road. It's its value will not be affected by what we do here. The other property, you can't see this property from there. So there's no, there's, there's nothing from conserving the 5,000 acres that will in any way economically directly benefit those 300 acres. That's an issue. That's why I'm bringing it up. Um, well, I, it would be better for those people to own that and lease land over in the 5,000 acres after the conservation easement. Lease some farmland, lease some hunt land, um, and the lease can be, you know, it can be nominal. I'm not talking about, you know, big money. Um, because here, here's the other thing we generally do on these is after after the statute of limitations for look for auditing old tax returns has expired the um the manager and or usually one or two of the original owners have the right to buy back the member units from the other guys at a set price that's that's fixed in the operating agreement prior to the closing of the of the syndication and it is it's it's a little bit more than nominal but still you've just made 30 million it's not going to be enough to really put a dent in that and all you do is you just chuck that into an investment account for six years let the statute of limitations run and then buy back all the member units so then all the member units come back into usually the original guy the operating agreement limits the ability of the investors to come on and use the land and typically because nobody wants a bunch of New York Yankees looking for a tax break to come walk around their land. <laughs> we'll take their money when we're doing the raise, but we don't want to mess around and, you know, shooting themselves and, you know, crap like falling off of four wheelers and whatever. Um, so, uh, oh, by the way, recreational use is also one of the permitted uses, uh, obviously with some limitations. Um, so that's the kind of, that's the kind of thing I think um, that you're, you're, you're right up thinking right i think um you'd have to be careful about the rules and i will step back here just to give you the contiguous what's called the contiguous parcel rule basically if the 5,000 acres makes the 200 acres that you want to develop more valuable then the increase of value in that separate parcel is factored in to the charitable contribution values that makes sense so it lessens your charitable contribution value 
when you lessen your charitable contribution value, that's less money that you can raise. Okay. The main problem people have gotten in, got run into with the IRS on these is when they go take out a full page ad in the New York Times that says, "Hey, get five dollars of tax benefit or get ten dollars of tax benefit for every dollar you spend." And when they promote it, it's the promotion where they're promoting it as a tax benefit rather than promoting it as a business, a legitimate business purpose. Um, I've not worked on any that did that. So just so you know. So as, as far as you're concerned, so I've never, I've never, I've, I've know people who have done those, but I have never, I have never participated in one that has taken that approach. Generally the ones that I have worked on, it's, it's people who know people say, Hey, Here's something we're doing over here. We could mine this, or we could conserve it. So your your preferred method would be to use that as uh, you you would you would say separate the community you're trying to build from the the land that you're trying to conserve, like not have the the two parties at, integral. At least at least to some extent. You could do it as a contiguous parcel. If you wanted, to, if you have five thousand acres, you're like, oh, screw it. Let's just go ahead and these five hundred acres. Let's just go ahead and develop, put a little community center, a church in the middle of it, and we'll just we'll just have less charitable contribution deduction. You could do it that way. It just lowers the value of your charitable contribution deduction. Okay. All right. And this is not for me. Go ahead. I was gonna say, if it were me, I would start with the 300 acres down the road that's it would be almost impossible to link any appreciable economic benefit from this and then i would gradually buy other parcels that led back to it after the statute of limitations ran so in year seven i'd be start i would start uh try to buy up property that led back to the 5,000. that's what i would do i have not had the opportunity to pursue that strategy well it, it requires money that of which we're not we're not Ted Turner or Bill Gates right now. No, no, and you know the thing is is you could I mean you know I did a big scale you can you can do this on a much smaller scale. You're going to spend to do to do option B the advance the syndication. I can imagine you're going to spend you're probably going to come close to a hundred in attorney's fees. You're probably going to spend fifty thousand on your appraiser. You're probably going to spend twenty-five to forty on your geologist, depending on how. Again, that depends on how big the land is. If he's doing sixty acres, and we've done them on sixty acres, and had you know it was sixty acres of granite, so we still got a pretty good charitable contribution deduction. It was almost straight granite. It was almost sixty acres of pure granite, with you know four, you know four feet of overburden. Um, you know, he's only going to have to drop three holes. You're probably talking ten to fifteen thousand. But on something like the five thousand acres, you're probably going to spend, I don't know, close to fifty thousand on your geologist. You'll probably spend fifty to sixty or seventy on the um, uh, mining consultants. Again, depending on the complexities. Um, and then your land trust, on a situation like this, is probably going to want. They used to want. Fifty thousand. They've begun because of the because of the IRS increased audit activity. They've begun asking for closer to eighty eighty five hundred thousand dollars to accept the easement. Again, that that's a lot of money. 
But if you do it right and you've got the property that hits all those boxes, you're talking about chump change to compared to what you're going to raise. Because there are people who know about these and are looking to get into them who oftentimes cannot find one to get into when they want to. So it's a small, specific market, but it's a dedicated market. Because here's the other thing, and I know that I keep, as I'm talking, I'm reminding myself of other things. When you're doing a transaction that large, you take a million dollars and you put it in your audit defense fund. And you leave it there for six years until the risk of audit goes away. So you're not worried about an audit. If you're raising $30 million, you put a million bucks into the audit defense fund. That's something that we put into the operating agreement that we, we're going to do so that the investors have a comfort level saying, hey, if we get audited, what's my risk? Um, and so um, anyway, so you, you again, you know, you're talking about a pretty savvy you know, pretty savvy investors in a pretty complex transaction, you're not going to enter into this shooting from the hip. Everything's going to be, you're going to pay a lot of people to think about it a lot to make sure nothing that can be covered and taken care of is taken covered and taken care of. Still running audit risk. Um, I had a client one time who was looking at one, send me an article from Forbes. The headline ran, um, uh, tax court, uh, um, tax court denies $20 million of charitable contribution deduction in abusive tax scheme conservation easement. I'm like, oh crap. You know, here goes. And Forbes is notorious for this junk because they're like lap dogs to the IRS. So I start reading the article. I get about one paragraph in and I stop. So you've just heard me describe what is a not unreasonable scenario on 5,000 acres, right? 250 million, you raise 30 million properties worth, you know, just as it is without the highest and best use, 15 million. Um, okay, that's 5,000 acres. That's, um, I may or may not be using actual numbers from an actual case. Well, I start reading the article, I get about, I can't remember if it's the first or second paragraph. The land they were conserving was 35,000 acres. And so I called the client and I said, Mr. Client, do you realize how big the charitable contribution deduction was on this thing? $20 million is probably 1 50th of the entire charitable contribution deduction that they're able to take on this. So you're probably looking at them reducing a charitable contribution deduction down from 400 million to 380 million. That's not bad. <laughs> so, you know, so yes, it did get reduced. And to most people looking at a headline, 20 million sounds like a tremendous amount of money. And it is. But when you do the, when you get the investors into, this is the other nice thing, is when you get the investors in the syndication and they vote of their own free will, they vote for a charitable contribution or they vote for conservation easement. The people who have invested in this probably do have the wherewithal to use every last drop of that charitable contribution deduction. And that's why the IRS hates it. Because if, if the highest and best use said it was 250 million, guess what? 
we're using 235 million of charitable contribution deduction down to the last dollar, most likely with the 80 people that I had invest. Those are probably all multimillionaires, if not billionaires, and they will use every ounce of it. Which is the other part that you know, I don't talk about as much. And when I say enemy, of course I don't mean the US government. I mean the left wing politically. Yeah, we're, we're, we're picking use, up what you're laying They on. don't get to use the tax revenue. Yeah. Right. Well, well, good, you know, frankly. Well, that's a good way to starve the right. beast, right? And to also um, enrich our people. Exactly. Which kind of it leads also us takes to the, some dollars out of some Yankee pockets. That's right. Which, uh, I mean, that's kind of... went all the way around. Yeah. Well, they kind of um, answered yeah. the, uh, the last... They, question we have on like how can this adv- advance the cause of Dixie and we're not sending our money to Sodom we're, we're, we're keeping it you know in Jerusalem basically we're keeping it in the promised land um, and, and, that, and we're taking care of our soil and our air and our water yep conservatively and we're limiting development yeah yeah and we're still using the land yeah we're not letting it sit you know, feral, we're still managing it. We're still stewarding it. Uh, we're still exercising dominion over that land. And, and we're stewarding it a lot better than the than the national parks that are having, you know, literal wildfires because they're not managed properly. They can't do it. They can't do it. If somebody just handed this land over to the federal government, they couldn't manage it. Mm-mm. They would have to sell it. They don't have the manpower. They can't pay enough people to take care of this, these lands. Well, I mean, we we can see that just just based off the evidence of, of the national parks out west, you know. They I mean, yeah, they don't take care of them. They're closed. Half of them are closed. Yeah. And, and the reason the reason most of ours are most of ours are handled by locals, um, the the local state agencies, as far as I'm aware. Um, most of our national parks are handled by the locals, who actually care about the land, um, and making sure that the you know the local environment isn't all screwed up <laughs> now you know, you know I, right. say, I say that i mean the the issues that we've all had and i think i think the three of us have seen this uh it's already been mentioned a couple of times but you know the the subdivisions are everywhere um you know where i'm at the the city just south of us is trying to spread north and they're kind of landlocked a bit so they're they're trying to spread their wings and you know, they've got you know, blocks of of downtown city that is literally rotting. I mean, the 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 the, the buildings have been rotting since the '60s, the late '60s, and they're they're not touched by the local owners because they get they make more off depreciation than they do use. So instead of leasing those buildings out to be used in the downtown, they are sitting completely uninhabited. I think the the last store I just drove by there. Um, last Thursday, I think it was, and the last business, it was a local, um, uh, local eatery in business for 65 years. Just, let's just close up shop. And, you know, that, that, that was the last business actually operating on those, on those five blocks. Mm. I mean, just, and then, I mean, you can, you can look up and see the, see the Venetian blinds that have been up there since the sixties and not, not been touched. I mean, they're just, Right. Hanging out, uh, they've got broken windows everywhere. You know, four lease obviously is on the window, 
uh, but they haven't leased it out in 60, 80 years, you know? So. Yeah. Well, yeah, and let's hope that they don't, um, they don't uh, implement what some of the left wing among our, or left, the lefter wing, it's all left wing. <laughs> uh, the lefter wing of our government wants to do where they begin taxing unrealized gains. Um, right. Yeah. That's uh, that's another issue. Another, I mean, there's several side little spirals off of this. It also, it also reduces property tax value um, because the value of the land is worth less after you put a conservation easement on it. Um, I've explored the idea of doing these in in tax exempt organizations. I've not done that yet, but there's no reason that I see initially that you couldn't, except you could get the investors. Um, um, but you might you might be able to have some other way to, to do that. Um, I've looked at the public benefit corporation, which may be able to overcome that issue. Um, you know, there's no reason I don't guess that once you did this after the expiration of the statute, you couldn't contribute the land to a tax exempt organization, which would then reduce property tax value to zero. <laughs> I actually know a guy who did that. Uh, he was trying to open up a new store in a small town in North Georgia. And they kept giving him a hard time about needing a certain amount of parking spaces. And they wanted to make improvements to the sidewalk and plant trees and do new street lights. And finally he said, screw it. I'm giving it to the Baptist church. And he owned like the entire block. And he's like, I'm giving it to the Baptist church. And he gave the block to the local Baptist church. <laughs> He's like, so, you know, you mess around with me enough. I'm not going to make any money off it, but you're dang sure not going to either. <laughs> yeah, there you go. That, that church's going to make use of it, not not you. Uh, anyway, I don't know. Yeah. Oh, uh, he, was, he was a colorful character. Um, so my mind kind of went so through I think I've, I've, I've covered a fair amount of ground. And, and, Yes. Okay. Well, my, my mind went to the same I was place. Say, if there's any nuts and bolts questions, ask me. Yeah, so I, I kind of went to the same place that Travis did regarding uh, using this to fund communities, right? And, uh, you know, ideally, in my mind, you know, you would have land conserved that isn't going to be used for all these degenerative purposes. And you've got other land that's being used to, to actually build communities. You would have people with uh, complementary trades and um, exactly. trying to trying to build local environments that, that are actually building a cohesive unit. And they would have a church. You know, I, ideally these would be Christian Southerns, and and they would right. be building a, a Christian community. And this this would be part of the funding efforts. Uh, for that. So, you know, my question uh, along these lines is, you know, as far as I'm concerned, I'm looking at people who aren't Ted Turner's and Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos, right? Where, you know, the guys I'm talking to are, uh, you know, Farmer Johns. So right. uh, the stuff that we're looking at, what, what nuts and bolts wise, what would be the, the plausibility of um, you know, I'm, I'm using a term from my sphere, but like crowdfunding this, how would, how, how would you, how, how would that go about working? Can't do it. You can't do it. Cause everybody has to be a qualified investor. Um, oh, okay. 
at least you can't you can't get um and, and that's a technical term you have to have certain income levels or asset levels or be in a certain profession that the courts will presume has a certain level of financial savvy that kind of thing that's the word they use or sophistication okay. um now you could crowdfund the purchase of the land um you could crowdfund the cost of the of the uh of doing all your documentation um yeah that was more I along the know, lines i was talking yeah that um i mean let me think through it i've never i've never i've never thought about that because i've never been faced with it because generally you have somebody with some land and I, and while obviously anybody who does these is going to be wealthier than your average joe they don't necessarily have to be a ted turner either I mean, they just need to have a few hundred acres and generate a million dollars a year. I mean, I'm just I'm just throwing out numbers, but I mean, right. roughly, somebody who makes about a million dollars a year and has some land, and those people are not super uncommon. Um, you know, you can go to any local industrial park, and one of those business owners might fit that category. Right. Um, and if he got another buddy or two. Uh, and that's what I've seen. I've seen two or three guys who who stretched a little bit to do the first one. But and by the way, I actually just ran the numbers on a you know on that scenario I just gave you where it's two hundred fifty million. Your raise would actually be closer to sixty two and a half million, not thirty million. You would probably be somewhere in the neighborhood of a sixty two and a half million dollar raise on something with a two hundred and fifty million dollar highest best use value. That's a good sum. So, so, <laughs> so if you've got some money that you can, I mean, you, you see somebody that might invest three hundred thousand dollars in a in a stock market, can say, okay, I mean, now there's more risk, um, and, you know, there's more upfront costs. I mean, there's some things about it that aren't conventional and aren't normal. You have to actually make sure your people are doing all their work right and all that kind of stuff. I mean, it is more involved. Um, but purely from a math perspective, if you can do it, I see no reason not to. If you have a stomach for the risk, and if you can understand the numbers and realize that the risk is mitigated by that million-dollar defense fund that you have in reserve. And a million-dollar defense fund, audit defense fund, is a drop in the bucket when you're raising 62 and a half. Those are big numbers to all of us. But it is an economies of scale thing. Um, and again, I, I actually, and I'm not blowing smoke here. Wait a second, I have to some smoke here. I'll say that. Smoke here, I just did. Um, but that's, I've seen, I've seen those numbers before. Those are numbers I'm not entirely making up. Um, I've seen probably the highest raise I've seen was that I had anything to do with was in the $90 million range. That's a lot of now, th those. I mean, you're talking about, you're talking about at this point, you can keep calling it community building, but you're talking about potential nation building kind of money. Right. Yep. Um, and, you know, because what you could do with that, if you're not, if you don't have to go, you know, first of all, you can buy another piece of land and do the same thing on, 
with that money. You could buy five more and do the same thing all with that money. Um, you can, again, you know, all the things I've listed before as far as funding good, faithful churches, helping people out, helping helping people start their own businesses, which other than this is probably the next best uh, tax deduction vehicle is start your own business. Um, you know, I and mean, there's all kinds of really good things you can do with that. And by the way, when I say really good things with that, most of which are recognized by the tax code as really good things. Um, you know, in terms of, you know, the tax code is written to encourage certain behaviors. There's no doubt about that. Tax policy is meant to get people to do certain things. So you can take any, you know, even if you want to pocket $5 million just for fund cash, you still have a lot left over to really fund life-changing, community-changing um, things. Most of the people who do these don't do that. I wish they did. That Now, individually, some of them are Christians and do good things with that. They tend to be more in our general, you know, on our general spectrum of things without being specifically where we are or having some of the visions about community that we do, uh, meaning, meaning most of the people involved generally are fairly conservative people. Um, although the biggest market when it comes to investors for these, I'll take a stab at where they come from. The North. Specifically the halls New York. of Congress. Ah. The halls of Congress. Even worse. Literally a swamp. Because they're the only ones that know about it. They're, they're the they know the swamp rats. It comes up and gets debated every so often so that so that whoever what it is, Chuck Grassley, can go grandstanding from a committee and talk about I'm not gonna let these rich people take money. Well he is from Iowa, I think, so he doesn't talk like that. I'm not going to let these rich people take money from the pockets of ordinary Americans with these abusive tax schemes, you know, and so he can go grandstand for a little while. And meanwhile, he's telling his accountant, hey, get me in one. (laughs) (laughs) Why hadn't why hadn't you told me about these before? (laughs) You know, and but so the members of Congress are the you know, other than the people who do them are the next biggest group of people who know about them. Um, Trump did them. Uh, by did him, I, uh, I don't know if he actually, I think he did, did both sides of them. I think he invested in some, and I think he, you know, he, he did some of, you know, from the landowning side. Um, the Democratic governor of Georgia was, has probably done, you know, former Democratic governor of Georgia from several years ago, probably has done 10 of them. It's a, it's a bipartisan, it has bipartisan support in Congress. Um, so it, it's, you know, it might get it might get some edges chopped off here and there. They might limit you on this, that, or the other. But right now, this is the way it stands as far as the law goes. Um, you know, we just have to watch the cases and watch the Congress, and you know. But even if even if not everybody listening is going to actually participate in one of these, at least know that they're there and they're good things. And if you get a chance to put a bug in your congressman's ear about it, support it. It's not jipping anybody out of any money that is owed some money um contrary to what the grandstanding will say and contrary to what the irs uh you know tries to call its dirty dozen this is there's what we're talking about is all 100 percent within the law i mean um, it's not just me give you a caution. money but it's keeping wilderness alive for your grandchildren 
And that's far more important yep. than money. We're keeping the water moxins alive. You're right. It absolutely is. I like it when Farmer John does it. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm happy. Um, I'm happy when people do it in that scenario. I'm happier when they do it in the other one and make some money off of it, especially if they're paying me to help them with it. But, um, <laughs> but I don't, I mean, I'm not, I'm not into that, you know, so my, my take is not anywhere near that, but, um, still, um, the other thing I was going to mention about it, what was it? It was on the tip of my tongue. Um, nah, I've forgotten it's gone. If I think of it, I'll say it. There's one other thing I was going to mention. It just slipped my mind. And me looking at that number right there doesn't make any difference. So I'm going to minimize it. Anyway, well, this kind of gets into, you know, we, we just we just did a, uh, a podcast on Southern conservationism. Uh, and, you know, we've, we've talked about people like Salatin and um, uh, a few others that have done, you know, farming projects in the South. And they're they are trying to bring back this mindset of you know taking dominion over the land being good stewards of the land um and you know we've we've been kind of coming at this from if you want to think about it in this way the the, the bottom up uh and so one of the one of the things that we were really excited about was getting you on talking about this come coming from a top-down perspective right so we're we're looking at this as the opposite end of trying to do real good in maintaining uh, our our land, pers- uh, uh, preserving uh, uh, just the benefits, the, the the bounty that God's given us in the land, and then learn how to use this from a legal standpoint. Um, and so, like again, my mind goes to community, and you know. If, if I could be a little ambitious with it, you know, country building. Um, but, you know, this, this is a, this is a really important step. So I'm, I'm kind of, I've been milling over in my mind how I could get this to happen in my area uh, and how I can, um, who I could possibly contact. And I probably have got some contacts within, I don't know, two, two degrees of separation from me. Uh, that I could I, I could probably have something like this happen, um, and, I, and I would just have to scope out the land and make it happen, right? Um, but it's just uh, what what it, I guess it's just dealing with what numbers are really profitable. So I guess uh, a question for you on this is: um, I know you've been talking in the the hundreds and thousands of acres, but I mean, how, how many acres of land is really a profitable size? Smallest uh, one I've done it? was, yeah. The smallest one I've done was sixty acres, around sixty acres. Okay. Um, it it generated a charitable contribution. This is the one that was almost all granted, though. These are very specific, so I, you know, understand this is really, really general. Um, it would really be fact specific. This particular one was in North Georgia, along a scenic route near one of the oldest, most venerable family restaurants that tourists come. You know, like you could see it from that restaurant sitting in the dining room. Right. Um, it was, you know, and it had very little overburden. It was 
two miles away from a, a Vulcan mine that was about to close because they had used up all of what they had. Um, and it was great. It was, they don't all have to be money, by the way, but I've just used that because it's a, it's a, it's my preferable highest and best use because it's easier to establish with certainty the values. Um, but that was a little over 60 acres. And, um, Oh, I should have, I should have had the documentation with me, but it's on another computer. I want to say our our charitable contribution deduction came in at around uh, seventy five million, and the raise was fifteen million. Those there was two partners. Um, they bought the acreage together. It was sixty acres. It was on a mountain that nobody could build on. You could quarry it, but nobody could build houses there, really. It would be difficult to. Um, you know, and they bought it at probably, uh, I want to say they bought it at, what, maybe 13000 an acre? So what would that be? Anybody got a calculator? Let me pull mine up. So they, uh, 13000 sorry, I don't have all this ready. Like a, like a good podcast guest would. Seven hundred eighty. So they put about a million into the acreage. They put um, about that. This one we we got our documentation ready for around three hundred thousand. So let me add that. So they had a million one forty five in it, and we raised fifteen million. Million dollars for audit defense, fourteen million. They split fourteen million. You, you, I mean, yeah. I mean, now uh, usually you need a little more acres to get that kind of evaluation. But I had another uh, property, not in the same place, but in the same general region, very generally, and it was about it was a little over two hundred acres, and that was where we got close to two hundred and fifty million with the highest and best use valuation. With a little over 200 acres. So what are some other but, things that you could do this with Slash it had, Rock? It, it, had, it had a rail running through it. Like it had mm -hmm. rail on the property. So that, that's why I say these are specific, but I'm just giving you examples of, um, right. well, you could do, depending on, you know, and it, this is another area where the IRS has attacked, um, even though even though not, <clears throat> excuse me, not always successfully. But, um when, when they've been done based on real estate valuation, real estate development valuation, that's a little easier to attack because it's a little more speculative. Because real estate, it's difficult to say whether or not a spot will become popular. And I'll give you an example from a client I had. Um, there was an old farm. Uh, I don't know how many acres. It was somewhere between one and 300. Um, it had an old house on it, but it was a ruins. It was, it was like a you know bombed out ruins. Um, the acreage was, you know, under ten thousand an acre. All the farms were there. You know, all, the IRS wanted to argue that it was only worth what all the farms were doing around there. Well, instead of doing a and I didn't work on this, one, but instead of doing a conservation easement, this particular guy was contacted by a wealthy person, I'm not, I can't be too specific, who said, I want something for my son 
to be able to run. What can we do with this? Or, or, or find me a good property that we can do something on. This guy said, let's, let's open a world-class resort on this property. Build some gardens around these ruins. I, I probably can't get more specific than that. And um, it's, it's one of the best resorts in the world, stuck out in the middle of a bunch of farmland. And um, I think the rich guy's son sold it for hundreds of millions of dollars to you know some hotel group to operate. So that's an example where the IRS would only see, you know, its current use value and where this guy basically went into the middle of nowhere and turned it into something that was worth hundreds of millions of dollars. And that's why it depends. Could, if he had done it anywhere else, would it have done the same thing? I don't know. It was spitting distance from Atlanta, so you had enough money for people to come visit. It wasn't too close in it was you know, you know i mean it had a number of factors going for it um but some of the ones that have gone bad on audit have been things like where somebody took a you know a couple hundred acres of scrub pine sandy soil three hours from a highway in the middle of south georgia and said well we're going to put we're going to build a neighborhood 400 homes you know and they're going to be two and a half million each well no you're not <laughs> i mean that that, nobody's going to go buy two and a half million dollar homes down there. They can't, you know, the best use for that is just deer hunting. There's nothing else to it, um, you know, or, or riding motorcycles. Um, so there have been some, not, not part of the real estate one is, you know, you have to, you have to be, but, but there again, the people who are doing the appraisals are the one that drive it. And that's why we say to the appraisers, you know, we're not looking for a number. We're looking for your independent judgment. What can be done if we want to, you know, is it mining? Is it real estate appraisal? You know, here's what we think. We have this, you know, we went and got the, you know, the, the core samples or, or here's a trend. We noticed this 10 miles over here. We noticed that a retirement community, you know, based around stargazing, which there's actually one of those in Georgia. Um, and it was, I mean, literally in the least populated county in the state. It's actually considered the blackest county in the country. And by black, I mean, there's not very many lights there because not many people live there. It's on the eastern seaboard. It is the darkest county in terms of light pollution. And so some guy went and bought up a bunch of land out there and he built this community of people who love to stargaze. There's a huge telescope on the property and then every house comes with its own little dome. And, you know, the houses are a million, million and a half on down to 500,000. Um, but he made a pile of money on this but how do you gauge those kind of things that's that's what i say the real estate ones you know i don't know that anybody like if you came and tried to do a conservation easement and say well what we could put here is a stargazing community you'd have a hard time proving that <laughs> i mean that's sort of like a you know it worked but it, it has just as much chance of not working um, it just turned out that everybody thought it was an awesome idea and it's hour and a half from atlanta so it's not too far from people who would buy the houses just to have a place to go for a week and stargaze when, you know, the Perseids are out or something. And, um, so it's about what yeah, you that's can why prove, I say the real estate speculation. What's possible. It's about what you can prove. And it's e easier to prove the money. And I mean, that, that's got to knock out a lot of properties. North Georgia, it's pretty good because in, in parts of Tennessee, because we have a ton of granite up here. Um, but you don't have to do granite. You can do it on Kalen. 
Um, there's a ton of industrial uses for kaolin. You can do it over marble. You can do it over um, shale. You can actually do it over um, limestone too. I mean, some of it's not just what is that rock worth, but what are the industrial uses? I found out on one that I was working on that there were like 145 industrial uses for marble. Who knew? Sit down here would probably you know, red. I, all I knew was, yeah, that's right. <laughs> so, but I mean, it really depends on the property, and and you know, you have to. So it helps to have somebody not on the clock, like a you know somebody who's knows what they're looking for, can at least maybe pay somebody five thousand dollars to come give them sort of a preliminary. Yeah, don't go that direction, or yeah, go that direction. But in general, when we do these, most of the people who are doing them have done them. And they don't get the property if they're not pretty sure it's going to be a good one. You know what I mean? I mean, they're not always just doing their own family land. Um, they could if they just happen to have the right set of circumstances. But once you've done it, if you have that family land that works, what you do is you take some of that money you raise and you, you go looking specifically for properties that are good for, for this. You just, you know, you just look at ads. So you find something you think might work and then you, Call a consultant and go from there. Kind of thing you, you could get a few you could get a few partners in on. I don't know if y'all can hear it, but I'm starting to get rain on the tin roof. This has been okay. a very interesting conversation. I'm glad you came on. Um, did you want to do that the, the hot seat or did you want to kind of work towards closing us out? We're, we're oh yeah, sure. I'll do the hot seat. We're we're at like an hour and forty right now. Yeah. Go for it, Luke. I didn't have any questions. All right, go ahead. Yeah, I'm 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 kind of showing my uh, my rear end here. I don't have any questions either. <laughs> I just say so the hot the hot seat is for y'all to come up with the questions. Yeah, exactly. Well, I didn't yeah, know we were gonna the... do it. So, but uh, uh let's <laughs> see. Um, uh, besides Dabney, who's your favorite Southern theologian? Uh, Thornwell, James Henley. Uh, eschatological position: Are you pre-mill, mill, or correct? Correct. <laughs> what why are baptists right on uh on baptism i'm sorry what, what did you what did you i didn't hear the first part of that i said why are the baptists right on baptism boy i don't know <laughs> have you stopped beating your wife yet <laughs> i'm still working on that <laughs> quid pro quo yeah <laughs> what was the uh, what was the lawyer's name in uh, Silence of the Lambs oh. the part that Biddy Foster played you all remember that you know he kept doing the quid pro quo thing with him oh Clarice with her. Clarice yes quid pro quo Clarice <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I'm out of questions. On, I, was, with, me, okay. I, I, wanted, I just wanted that one like question. Uh, okay. Okay. Last question. Last question. Oh, here uh, one, one book you would recommend that um, every good Southerner needs to read. Oh goodness. I mean, I'm going to obviously aside from the Bible and the various confessions and catechisms and stuff. Um, wow. Goodness. Um, can I give two? Go for it. Uh, a Defense of Virginia in the South by Robert Louis Dabney. Um, the Southern Front uh, by Eugene Genovese. 
Who? Uh, it's a collection of his essays. He started out as a communist, uh, intent to prove communist principles, and his topic of study as a historian was the antebellum South. After 40 or so years of trying to prove communist principles in the antebellum South, he converted to the religion of the masters, became a Christian, and the Southern Front, which is, it has a subtitle, um, essays, uh, I think essays in the culture war or something like that. And um, the book is a collection of his essays that he wrote over the span of his career um, that you can follow his development of thought as, as he's studying the history of what really went on on the plantations in the South. And in the end, he converted to the religion of the masters. And that's the way he puts it. And he's a, you know, born a Yankee. I mean, he's a New Jersey Yankee. Uh, he taught at Emory for a while. Um, uh, he's dead now. Uh, his, he and his wife both taught at Emory. His wife converted a, a couple of years after him, I think. And um, fascinating. Every Southerner needs to read those. Both those. There, there's others, but those would be my first two. We'll I'd probably go with Dadman's discussions after that. Yeah. So, so I, I, I've got one. Uh, out of these three, which one do you, would you recommend reading first? Uh, Weaver, de Tocqueville, or Soul? Oh, Weaver. <laughs> Is that even a race? I had to ask the question. <laughs> to ask the question is to answer it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, oh, no, no uh, de Tocqueville had a very good... Um, all good material, yeah. I, I acknowledge them all is really good to read, but my vote, my vote goes with Weaver. There is a ground for declaring that modern man is a moral idiot. Is one of the greatest lines, greatest lines ever written. <laughs> I I just got done reading. Um, I say just is the middle of last year, but uh, after Virtue by Alistair McIntyre. Oh uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. He he was kind of uh, that that book um probably was the final nail in the coffin for my libertarianism uh right. I, I would i would have to say that uh, yeah well and now that you got my juices flowing i would i would want to slot in a a um a third book into my two books every southern need one book every southern needs to read and that would be i'll take my stand by the 12 southerners okay i'll, I'll have to get that one i don't have that one yet oh oh yeah, I've got a lot of Weaver books, and I'm, I'm, I'm getting. He's in their I'm tradition. Getting... He's he's not. Okay. He was he was he was after them, but he stood he stood on their shoulders. The twelve um, Vanderbilt Vanderbilt twelve the Southern Agrarians, Alan Tate, okay. um, uh, all those guys. Yeah. Hey, I'm gonna go. Let's go ahead and end the recording. We can still continue to talk, but I'm gonna go ahead and. Um, yep. Thank you for coming on. Um, hope to. Hope to talk thank to you, you again me. soon on here, and uh, it was a very, very enlightening discussion. So, thank you. Thank you both very much. Hey, y'all. Thanks for listening in on our podcast. If you like what you hear, please share and comment wherever you're listening to it. And check out our Gab page at Dixie Polis Podcast. If you want to contact us, please send an email to DixiePolis at ProtonMail.com or send us a message on Gab. If you like the music we're playing, hang out a little while and let the song finish. It's Wayfaring Stranger by Southern Raised, and you can listen to them on YouTube or go to their website at southernraisedbluegrass.com. God bless y'all.
Ooh.